morning. What's in a name? One of the reasons this church is still alive and well has everything to do with the power of a name. Let me explain. The story dates back to 1908. Does everyone know Anime and Agnes and Dick, if he's here? Can you raise your hands, Anime and Agnes? So their mother, his name was Jenny, Jenny Strasma, and she was born in the Netherlands. And here's how she tells the story of how she came to this area. She says, there was a rich farmer who lived near Shadeland in a big house. His name was Sam Lutz. He paid for our trip to the States. He had a small house just east of where he lived. So we moved there and dad worked for him by the month. Now listen to this. This is the power of a name. He said he liked the Dutch people because they were good workers. I love that. He liked the Dutch people because they were good workers. A rich American farmer knew the reputation of a Dutch name, and that provided the opportunity for the Strasmas to get on board a ship, cross the Atlantic, and come here today. And in case you didn't know, some of you are are newer here, about half the church has family ties to that story. So when the Dutch came over, by virtue of their good name, They started a church in 1888, and that church is what we call Heartland today. Did you know that bit of history? Well, I don't just say it to be interesting, but uh, I say it to, to answer the question, what's in a name? Everything. Names matter. Names connect you with the person's story. A name speaks of one's reputation, speaks of one's identity. A name communicates what's unique about a person. So what about God's name? What reputation does God's name carry? What's behind the name of God? What does it communicate about God's identity? These questions were all burning questions for Moses as he encounters the presence of God in a burning bush. What is your name, Moses asks, and we shall soon hear God's answer. Before we do so, let's pray. And then we'll remember how we got to this point in the story. Then we'll focus our attention on Exodus 2 and 3. Pray with me for the illumination of God's word. Lord God, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. But we come to your word with so much baggage. For some of us, our hearts are heavy. For some, our burdens feel too much for us to bear. Our shoulders sag from the weight of the weak. So we check our baggage at the door this morning where Christ is standing and eager to hold it for us. Having done so, now we pray that you would help us to see clearly, shine on us the brightness of your spirit, so that we might see whatever it is you would like us to see from your holy scriptures this morning. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. The Bible is written as a story. We come to know God, including God's name, through a story. So before we hear God's answer to Moses' question about his name, we situate ourselves in the story once more. The story begins in Genesis. Three weeks ago, we caught a glimpse of God, our creator, at work. Creator is one of God's names. In Genesis 1, God creates humankind in God's own image. God places a divine stamp on both male and female. 
God provides a beautiful space for the flourishing of God's people and creation. All of this God calls very good. And then two weeks ago, we met Abraham and Sarah, God's chosen family. They're chosen not for privilege, but for purpose. Their purpose was to bless all the families of the earth through them. This goal, the goal was for God's name, God's reputation, to be made known to all other families of the earth through this one family. So right at the outset, God provides with three more names for God's family. God says, don't be afraid, Abram. I am your protector. I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. I am El Shaddai, which means God Almighty. So God's chosen family right from the outset, they learn what to call God, my protector, the Lord, God Almighty. And then we witness God providing once more, this time he provides a son, Isaac, even in their old age. Now the story goes on, and last week we met Isaac's son, Jacob. So first Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob. And now by this point, God's chosen family has become quite dysfunctional. You know anything about dysfunctional families? Anyone? (laughs) I do. (laughs) In spite of all this, God speaks to the family, and God gives Jacob a sign. It's a sign of his unfailing presence. God provides what? You remember? A ladder from heaven to earth, and God's messengers are ascending and descending on the ladder. And God affirms God's name once more, saying, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. God has a reputation in this family. You remember Jacob's response. Surely God is in this place, and I didn't know it. So by the time Genesis ends, God's entire chosen family has learned a bit about God's name, and they find themselves in Egypt. A drought has led them there. And since Joseph is second in command, they score quite the accommodations in Egypt. This happens after a a moving account of Joseph's reconciliation with his brothers. It's really a dramatic story, Genesis 37 through 50, if you want to read it later. Uh, So Joseph is sold into slavery, finds his way to Egypt, rises in power, and God's whole people are, are found in Egypt as the book of Exodus opens. So we're at the book of Exodus. God's name has picked up more and more meaning as we've gone along. And this time, and, and God's family is learning more and more about what God is like. And they have a sweet setup in Egypt. Now, very early on in Exodus, the plot thickens and hope darkens for God's family. Now, a new king came to power in Egypt who didn't know Joseph. This sets the dark stage for Moses to enter. God's family, as you know, are taken slaves as the, by the Egyptian king. This happened because of the age-old fear and suspicion of those not like us. Why did God let this happen? I don't know. But get this, sometimes we, sometimes we forget about this. While God's people are in slavery, God actually managed to to make good on one of his promises. God has promised people and land. They obviously don't have land yet, enslaved in Egypt, but it's during their period of slavery that God makes good on his first promise for people. 
Even amidst the darkness of slavery, God's family multiplies like grasshoppers. So the period of slavery coincides with a baby boom. And this goes on for a remarkable 430 years. So that's where we find ourselves in the story when we read these words from Exodus 2, starting with verse 23. Friends, hear the word of the Lord. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out. Out of their slavery, their cry rose up to God. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked upon the Israelites, and God took notice of them. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face. For he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out to a land, a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me. I have also seen how the Egyptians oppress them. So come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He said, God said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. But Moses said to God, If I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my title for all generations. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Three facts emerge from this unprecedented account in human history. Three facts which revolve around names. 
we'll use the rest of our time elaborating on these three facts. First, God provides God's name. Second, God knows your name. And third, God goes to great lengths for you to know that this really is true. So first, God provides God's name. God said to Moses, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. So what's in a name? A name is connected to one's character, one's reputation, one's family heritage. It says something about where you came from. Just as the Dutch name Strasma was associated with hard work and people, so too is God's name associated with a certain reputation. What reputation does God's name evoke? What reputation does God want for himself? An accurate one, that's all. So in this instance of Revelation, God makes God's name as accurate as possible insofar as we humans can understand it. I am who I am, God says. Of course, we already had a few names for God by this time, creator, protector, the Lord, and so on. And, and God's family could address God in all these ways. But it's important to note that all of these titles pertain to who God is in relation to them. You got that? So it'd kind of be like if someone knew me as the father of Lily and the husband of Stephanie and the pastor of Heartland without knowing my first name. That's how God's family knew God thus far. They knew what to call God in relation to themselves, but they didn't know God's proper name. But in this instance, God determined that the world was ready to know his proper name. God decided that the time was right in preparation for the greatest act of salvation in the Old Testament to reveal the truth about God's self. Who is God in and of God's self? Moses is interested in a deeper revelation of God's identity. He's going to need it if he's going to march into Egypt to free the slaves. So Moses is bold to say, If I come to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God replies, I am who I am. This is God's most essential name, apart from any relationship to us. It's really an impossible phrase to translate into English. In English, it sounds sort of like God has an attitude, like a snooty 13-year-old asserting her independence. I am who I am. Maybe that's just how it sounds to me. But that's obviously not God's tone here or anywhere else. Not only is it impossible to translate this phrase, but it's hard to understand. In fact, already by the 4th century, Augustine writes, perhaps it was hard even for Moses himself, as much as it is also for us to understand what was said, I am who I am. What mind can grasp, I am who I am. In Hebrew, it sounds like this. Eyet ser eyet. Eyet is the simple word for being or for existence. So we translate it, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. The early Christians all believe that God is here describing God's self as the essence of being. Now I know you don't all read philosophy in your spare time, but try to wrap your mind around this. 
God as the essence of being. The early Christians believed God is revealing to Moses that God exists eternally, apart from anything else, and that everything comes into being through God. God, in other words, is existence. God is reality, simply because that's who God is. As one ancient Christian put it, there is nothing more characteristic of God than to be. Friends, God is the most fully alive being ever. If you want life, if you feel dead, if you want to feel alive, turning to God is your best bet. Because God is the most alive being ever. God is rock-bottom reality. Everything that is real derives its realness from God. That's what's being communicated in this statement. I am who I am. This is the mystery God wants Moses and us to know at this moment, hard as it is to understand. God's name is reality. God's name is existence. God's name is aliveness. God provides us with his eternal name. I am who I am. Fast forward 1,500 years later. A man named Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth, is in a heated discussion with the Jewish leaders. They are bragging about Abraham, the father of God's family. And Jesus counters by claiming that real life, unending life, comes from knowing the true father. They respond, are you greater than our father Abraham? Then Jesus, like the Lord in the burning bush, reveals his original name. Very truly I tell you, Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. The connection was not lost on his Jewish audience. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. I am who I am, God says to Moses. Before Abraham was, I am, Jesus says to us. And with these words, Jesus unveils his truest identity to the world. Not just a good moral teacher, not just someone who existed a long time ago, but who has long ago died to the historical records. This Jesus is reality. This Jesus is existence. This Jesus is life. If you want life, if you feel dead and want to feel alive, does anyone here want to feel alive? Turning to Jesus is your best bet. Jesus, honestly, is your only chance at real life, at feeling alive. So I urge you, if you want a life that's real, if you want, a, if you want to be a person that isn't fake, wearing different masks to hide your shame, then I urge you to put all the various chips of your life at the center of the table and go all in with Jesus, the life giver. Jesus is life. And Jesus knows everything there is to know about the art of living well. So let's give ourselves to him. Apprentice him. Follow Jesus in every sphere of your life, and you will not be disappointed. So first, God provides God's name. That's the first fact that emerges from this account from scripture. It's the most difficult to understand of the three, so take heart. 
and uh, how'd the old saying go? Gird your loins <laughs> and get ready for the next two. I kind of want to bring that saying back. Gird your loins. <laughs> Give me a minute. I disappear for a second. <coughs> Lily likes that game, by the way. <laughs> One more minute. The second fact about names... Stop laughing at me. Jeez, I'm embarrassed. The second fact about names from our scripture text is this. God knows your name. God knows your name. Moses, Moses, God called out to him out of the bush. The bush that was burning and not consumed. In flames but not destroyed. God calls out to Moses from the bush and says... Moses, Moses, it's a personal address. It's not, hey, you over there, come here. God knows Moses' name because God knows Moses. And so we return to our question, what's in a name? A name makes things personal, doesn't it? That's why our welcome team encourages everyone to, to wear their name tags. Now everyone's looking around, you know, oh, I didn't wear my name tag today. Guilt, guilt, don't, don't worry about the guilt, let that go. But knowing someone's name, what's it do? It creates the opportunity for a deeper relationship. How deep can you go with a stranger without knowing their name? How can you be someone's friend without knowing their name? Knowing the name of another person means you've entered a personal relationship with them. The opportunity to connect on a deep human level is multiplied exponentially when you know that person's name. Are you with me? God knows your name. God knows your name. God, the creator, the essence of existence, God who is rock bottom reality. This God wants to be known by you personally, so God provides his name, and God wants to know you personally, so God remembers your name. Well, that can't be, some might suppose. If God knew me that well, God would know that I'm suffering. And if God is good, then God would do something about it. This is a common objection. It must have been the same one that God's family had as they groaned under, under their slave masters. Now, I can't tell you why God allows suffering, but I can tell you how God answered that ancient objection so long ago. I believe by experience and by faith that it's the same way God answers you and I and our suffering. It's with love. Exodus 2, verse 23. The Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out. Out of the slavery, their cry for help rose up to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked upon the Israelites, and God took notice of them. The literal translation of this last phrase is simply, and God knew them. God knows you, and he knows you by name. God answers your objections with love. In the midst of this account of suffering, 
the name God appears five times in just two verses. So where is God in the suffering? God is with the sufferer. God is surrounding. God is before us and behind us and within us and around us and in front of us. The Apostle Paul, who underwent so much suffering for the sake of Jesus and his mission, he understood this, and he writes these words. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure, because we look not at what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. So God provides God's name first. And second, God knows your name. And God is with you, remembering your name, whatever you're going through. And the third fact that emerges from our scripture passage is this. God will go to great lengths for you to know that these things are true. There's so much that could be said about Moses' encounter with God at the burning bush. And I'm sure some of you have heard many sermons on it before. I just want to add one point to your knowledge. The burning bush is an example, a prime example, of just what God is willing to do to get our attention. Oh, the things God will do in order to get our attention. Most of what hinders our growth in Christ, I think, is distraction. Most of what blocks our intimacy with God is distraction. Most of what keeps us stuck is distraction. Therefore, most of what God is trying to do for us, within us, is to help us pay attention to him. God wanted Moses to pay attention because God was about to enact real-life salvation for the people of Israel, for a nation of slaves. So what does God do to get his attention? God starts a fire. God sets a bush ablaze. God somehow alters the elements of his creation to create a sort of phenomenon that would surely attract attention. Oh, the things God will do in order to get our attention. But Moses, for his part, must respond to this attention grabber. God does the heavy lifting in our relationship with him. God does the heavy lifting in everything, really. Our job is simply to pay attention, to make ourselves available to his presence for his purpose, to respond to God with trust. God has been teaching one of our young teenagers in Heartland this lesson. Listen to what she said this week. She said, The more silent I am, the louder God is. Isn't that beautiful? From the mouth of a teenager. The more silent I am, the louder God is. She's discovered the mystery of how to pay attention to God, of noise, of distraction, of how that keeps us from paying attention to God. So friends, let me leave you with this. We must, like Moses, respond and turn aside or else we will miss out on the life that is truly life. We must respond again and again. This is not a one-and-done deal. Every second, I believe, God is whispering 
your name, inviting you into a conversation, trying to get you to notice what God is doing in your life, in your heart, in your sphere of influence. But we must respond to this or we'll miss out. Moses, he does respond. He responds by turning aside. Now, we rarely see in Scripture the inner thoughts of a person. But here is one of those rare occasions. Our text says that Moses said to himself, Oh, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. This is a light bulb moment for Moses. So friends, we too must turn aside from whatever it is we are doing and look at this great sight, which is our God extending the hand of fellowship to us. We too must turn aside from our favorite distractions and look at this great sight, God in the flesh, extending wide his arms so that all might fall within his saving embrace. My friends, what must you turn aside from this week that you might see the glory of God? Is it your worry? Is it your fear? Is it your past? Is it your suffering? Your sin? Your busyness? What must you turn aside from this week that you might pay attention to God? We must adopt the resolve of the psalmist who declares, I have set the Lord always before me. We must follow the exhortation of Paul who said, Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. We must obey the words of Jesus who commands, Seek first the kingdom of God, and everything else will fall into place. Friends, if we respond like Moses did, then we will enjoy the sort of relationship with God that Moses enjoyed. According to Exodus 33, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Would you like that kind of relationship with God who is rock-bottom reality? Believe it or not, by the grace of Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, and the power of the Spirit, this sort of life with God is available to each and every one of us. If we respond like Moses did, then we will enjoy God like Moses did. Do you believe that God might want to relate to you in this way? Might this be the reason that God provides you with God's name? Could this be the case? Could this be why God knows your name and is whispering to you, pay attention, here I am, follow me, enjoy me? Let us pray. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things came into existence through the Word, and the Word was made flesh and made his dwelling among us. You, Jesus Christ, are the Word that was made flesh for us. And you are the sign, the reality that teaches us to pay attention to what you're doing. You're everything, Lord. As we sang about earlier, we want to know you more. Sometimes we don't know how. So teach us this week, Lord, day by day. Show us, speak, give us things that help.
Help us pay attention to your presence in and around us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.